Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hi. My name is Gage. And my name is Ray. And you are listening to Go Report. A true crime podcast. (laughs) So nostalgic. It was so nostalgic. I love it. Jesus. The goblin energy comes right out the gate every time. I I love love it. it. I absolutely love it. If this is your first time listening to the pod, then welcome, welcome, welcome. 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 We're super happy to have you. If you like what you hear from me and Ray, then maybe leave us a good review or a good rating. We would greatly appreciate it and it helps support the show. But only give us those stars if you feel like we deserve it. Because we would hate to give you something subpar. And we will never give you anything subpar. Oh, base. I know. I don't know where where the hell that came from, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, continuing on, we also hope that you're having a good day and a good week and a good life. We always wish you the very best, no matter where you are or what you're doing. We're always just going to be sending you all the good. All the good. All the positivity. All the not crying. All of the waking up and having your favorite breakfast. Oh, that's nice. Right. Laying down in a clean bed with vacuumed carpet. Your TV's on mid-volume. Your lamp's flickering. Yeah. Yeah. And not to mention, you always get the cool side of the pillow. You and never have yes, wet socks. Yes, we hope you always have the cool side of the pillow. Yeah. I'm telling you, we are always just wishing you guys the very, very best. We hope that you find $5 on the ground. <laughs> and that it's not some sex trafficking ploy. Oh, my God. Stay safe, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Okay. So I want to say that uh, today's intro is going to be slightly lengthy, not too bad, but um, yeah, it's going to be filled with lots of fuzziness and Ooh. lots of gushiness, like, like a lot. <laughs> just, I don't know. Fuzziness is just a synonym for good, I feel like, you know, fuzzy. I mean, fuzzy does mean snuggly. Right. And snuggly means good. Right. So that's what we have a lot of today in our intro. I just have a lot of love that I want to hand out. So if you want to skip over all of this banter and skip into the case coverage, then by all means, go ahead and do that. We won't be mad at you. Well, maybe a little mad at you. (laughs) You said, now that I think about it, I would be just a little upset. (laughs) (laughs) So. Don't leave me. (laughs) Jesus, we're goblins. Such goblins. So to start handing out all of this love and fuzziness, 
I want to first start by giving a big old shout out to the Burden of Proof podcast. Yay! Yay! We recently sampled their promo during the Tristan Bailey episode, and yeah, I just really wanted to give them some love. Uh, Burden of Proof is hosted by Savannah and Alicia, and they do a fantastic job with their case coverage. Hi, Savannah. Like they, <laughs> hey, Savannah. Hi, Alicia. They do an incredible job. They've covered several cases that I've never even heard of, which I think is really, really cool. They cover, or at least in my mind, some less known cases. More than 90% of their content is episodes of cases that I've never heard of. So I just think that's really, really cool. And also, Alicia and Savannah are both paralegals. So like... Super smart. Yeah, super smart. So not only do they give you the events of the cases that they're covering, but they also add this additional layer to things by using their paralegal experience to kind of break down what happens after the criminals get caught. Like they go into the legal aspect of things. And I I just think it's really fascinating. That That is so interesting. It is super fascinating. And I also just adore the both of them. (laughs) Their personalities are fantastic. I love their dynamic and they are hilarious like i've cracked the fuck up (laughs) listening to a couple of their episodes so and they're super sweet they are really 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 sweet they've had nothing but kind words and support for us so i really wanted to give them some love today spread the word if you guys would like an episode recommendation from yours truly i really loved their episode on the love has one cult i don't know if any of you are familiar with that story i am i am and I don't like it. Yeah, it's cr- it's a crazy story, and they put together an awesome episode on it. I also really enjoyed one of their recent episodes. Well, I think by the time this episode airs, it'll be their recent before their recent episode. I guess I'm oh, learning okay, that right. Okay. But it was their 45th episode. They covered the case of Randy Triplett. And that one was really good, too. That was another case that I hadn't heard of until they covered it. And I was just like fucking blown (laughs) so burden of proof is incredible you guys should totally check them out you can find them on instagram at burden of proof pod so totally go and give them a listen i genuinely love their podcast so you we could promise you won't be disappointed (laughs) and the next round of love goes to all of you listening and i know we say thank you all the time but i truly can't help myself you guys deserve the biggest thank you I know some of you probably already seen this on our reel that we made, but last week we broke 40,000 downloads. Yay! Like 40,000, and that is absolutely nuts to me. It um, is. And if you want to put it into perspective further, it was only six months ago that we were <gasps> saying thank you for 2,000. Like, let that sink in. You guys are doing the damn thing. I'm telling you. So, you know, we've said it before. We'll say it again. This show would be nothing without you guys. All of your support is so appreciated. All of your kindness is so appreciated. It blows me the fuck away every day. Like, truly, it does. Like, the biggest, biggest, gushiest thank you. And I drive around in my car thinking of ways to show appreciation to all of you. But you know what? I just love you. That's that's what I have right now. I just love you. I think that's the best you can give. <laughs> It's the absolute best we can give. (laughs) And we're going to keep on giving it. We're going to keep on giving it. We're going to keep on keeping on keeping on giving it. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Son of a bitch. Uh, also, on the note of telling you guys just how fucking awesome you are, I wanted to say, too, that I was really taken back by all of the kind comments and messages that we received regarding your coverage of Corpsewood Manor. Yeah. Um, if you listen to that episode, <laughs> then <laughs> then you know that it was the first episode of ours where I legitimately, like, bawled my eyes out and I had a complete emotional reaction. Um, I was really nervous about keeping that in the episode, but my best friend Ray convinced me to do it and that <laughs> vulnerability is okay. So I did, but you guys just responded with so much encouragement and reassurance and kindness that it truly moved me. Like when I say I was taken back, I truly was. So you guys are just the best. Each and every one of you is the best and your support does not go unnoticed. So from not the bottom, not at all, from the bottom of my heart, I really wanted to acknowledge that. And I want to just for the hundredth time, give you guys a really big thank you because it is truly fucking unreal. And I'm so exuberantly happy that all of you are a part of our Gore family. Yes, the Gore family. And just know as a reminder that you are beautiful, you are smart, you are enough and you are worthy and very smart. Wait, I, I said smart twice. You did say smart twice. But the beautiful thing about it is our listeners are smart twice. <laughs> <laughs> they, each and every one of you is smart twice. Smart twice. Beautiful twice. Important twice. <laughs> all of the good things to the second power. Boy, the southern accents are coming out in full force right now. I know it's horrible. We need to reel the <laughs> shit back. Reel it back. So moving on now that we've given our daily doses of love and acknowledgement to the lot of you. We can now move on to the case that I have prepared for you this week. And uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, we're going to show you love, and then we're going to, you know, force your asshole through your body. <laughs> <laughs> you just made... I, I think I just literally spit on my microphone. <laughs> I... Oh, my God. Oh, God bless it. That truly just fucking sent me. I mean, you're not wrong, because what I was getting ready to say was, oh, uh, yeah, the tone of this episode's about to fucking change drastically. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jesus, that just sent me. We're Good headed God. south fast. Goodness. I can't, I can't even look at you right now. I can't even look at you. <laughs> Today's case is one that I've learned about fairly recently, maybe in the last two or three months. Um, the events of this case took place in Baraboo, Wisconsin in the 90s. Yay. So this is a 90s case. Such a good year. Such a, such a good set of years. <laughs> and it is truly one of the most unusual cases, like truly unusual cases I've okay. ever learned about. And not only is it very unusual, but it's pretty fucking horrific, Ray. Like... Fuck. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Um, My stomach just sank. <laughs> this is about to be a wild ride, you guys. This is the story of a truly sadistic teenager kidnapping, torturing, and killing other teenagers. So that's never fun. But mm. uh, nonetheless, you may be asking yourself, well, who is this sadistic teenager? Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be Joe Clark. I already don't like his name. When he committed his crimes, he was only 17 years old. Dalen's age. Right. Literally Dalen's age. And because of how he tortured his victims, he was named the Baraboo Bonebreaker. He is also referred to as the Bonebreaker Killer and the Bone Crusher. If that gives you any insight into what we're going to be talking about today, uh, now is definitely the time to prepare yourself. 
Well, fuck you guys. I was going to say sit back, relax, and grab <laughs> some snacks, but I see there will be none of it. Oh, no, definitely not. This one's pretty fucking bad. Our story begins on July 4th, 1994, in the town of Baraboo, Wisconsin. That was the day that 14-year-old Christian, or as he was more commonly called, Chris Steiner, was reported missing by his parents. He had seemingly vanished in the dead of night from his own home. And sadly, Chris's body would be found just six days later floating in the Wisconsin River. Oh, fuck. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. And the circumstances surrounding Chris's disappearance and his death were definitely a little fucking weird. Definitely a little weird. And this is where this story starts to unfold in its entirety. So let's start with a little background information and some further context into what exactly happened on that 4th of July weekend. Okay. Chris Steiner was born to his parents, Kathy and George Steiner, on November 19th, 1979 in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Chris also had one older brother named Jim. Chris was described as a very kind and very happy kid. He was very ambitious and he had good relationships with both of his parents and his brother. And in the year 1994, Chris was just 14 years old. He had just completed the eighth grade and he was just living at home with his parents and his brother Jim. They all had a house out in Baraboo. So it was around 7 a.m. on the morning of July 4th, 1994, that Chris's mother, Kathy, went into his room to wake him up for work, only to find that he was nowhere to be found. Fuck. Chris was not in his room, like, at all, so this made Kathy immediately panic. Uh, she knew that Chris wasn't the type of kid to just up and leave, and Kathy also knew that Chris wouldn't jeopardize his job. So this kind of intensified her panic, because the thing is... Chris had just gotten a job at the local McDonald's working alongside his older brother, and okay. this was his very first job. Aww. Yeah, and Chris was very, very ecstatic about this job. Um, he was out of school for the summer. As I said earlier, he had just finished the eighth grade, so he was getting ready to transition into high school. He was really excited to work and earn some money for himself for the summer. I mean, he had a lot of positive things going on at this time in his life. Right. And according to his parents, Chris was so adamant and so serious about his new job that he sat and like calculated how much he would make if he worked extra shifts on the weekends. And he also calculated his earnings for working on holidays. Okay. So, you know, he was very excited about working at this McDonald's. He was clearly very organized about it. Chris had actually worked his first shift at this McDonald's the day before on July 3rd. Wow. Yeah, it was his first day the day before this. He worked a long evening shift. Then he went home and passed out on his bed wearing his work clothes. Poor kid was tired. He was, yeah, he was working all day. So back to the morning of July 4th, Chris was scheduled to work his second shift at McDonald's, and this one was a morning shift. Mm -hmm. So when Kathy went in to wake him up, as I just you know literally said, Kathy went in and saw that Chris wasn't there. And we talked about this on the Tristan Bailey episode. But I truly can't imagine that. And like, I know you're a mom. So when it's when it comes to cases that deal with children, you have a little bit of a relation and an insight that mm -hmm. I don't have. But I could not imagine going to bed one night with your child safe in their bed only to wake up the next day to find that they're gone. Like that is some truly scary shit to me, like truly scary shit. So it's can, panic inducing. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine. It I couldn't really begin like to imagine. 
like the minute that you know that your child is supposed to be somewhere and they're not there, I my you God. like your stomach just drops. You feel so sick and and your mind races. Like it's it's literal hell because your mind is like my child, my child, my child. My goodness, like I just it truly just breaks me, honestly. So continuing on, when Kathy sees that Chris is gone, she immediately started panicking. She knew something bad had to have happened to Chris for him not to be in his room. Again, she knew the kind of kid that Chris was. He wasn't just going to leave his family and abandon his new job. Right. So Kathy immediately told her husband, George, that she couldn't find Chris. And together, they started searching the house. And very quickly, some alarming discoveries were made. Um, Kathy and George found that the window screen in Jim's room had been cut open. What? Yeah, the window screen was cut open. And both the front door and the back patio door of the house were somehow unlocked when usually they were locked all of the time. So, yeah, very quickly after finding the cut window screen and unlocked doors, Kathy called the police to report Chris as missing. Yeah. And when authorities arrived at the Steiner home, Chris's father, George, told police that the last time he saw Chris was at around 10 p.m. the night before. George said that he went into Chris's bedroom to check on him and found him asleep on his bed, still wearing his work clothes. And none of that seemed suspicious. You know, again, Chris had worked literally all day. It was his first day on the new job. He was tired. He simply passed out on his bed wearing his work clothes. Everything was fine and dandy. And soon after, George and Kathy went to sleep. George also told the police that he thought maybe one of Chris's friends could have possibly cut the window screen. Like, he was thinking that maybe Chris's friends had convinced him to sneak out. You know, being the 4th of July weekend, teenagers and their shenanigans, am I right? (laughs) Right. So that was just the initial assumption. Maybe Chris was just being a teenager. What if he, you know, what if he did run away? Or, you know, what if he was still hanging out with his friends? And we've talked about that specific phenomenon in quite a few cases, too, where... You know, sadly, it's a common thing in missing teen cases to initially assume that it's a runaway type of situation. Yeah, it's, More, it's a real dangerous way to think. I mean, I I wholeheartedly believe that you should not go into any situation like this with a preconceived notion of what right. happened. I know we've talked about that, but it yes. greatly hinders things. But more times than not, sadly, you will see the police labeling a missing teenager um, as a runaway at first. And that's something that happens more times than we'd like to think. Well, the sad thing about it is, is that runaway teens are so common that the police actually have a hard time, you know, differentiating. Thank you. But even more so. My brain stopped and I couldn't figure out the fucking word. Yeah, you're good. But with what you just said, that drives the point further. If you can't initially differentiate, then why are you immediately assuming it's a runaway? Right. So that's even more proof that they should, you know, again, don't go into something like this with a preconceived notion. Mic drop. But unfortunately, the whole runaway thing was the initial theory with Chris's disappearance. But the theory did not hold up very long. Not at all. The investigators working the case definitely felt as if it was some sort of abduction, especially after they saw the evidence at the house, you Mm -hmm. know, looking at the cut open window screen, the unlocked doors, nothing was pointing in the direction of Chris being a runaway. And to add to that evidence, investigators also found muddy footprints outside of the Steiner home, footprints that seemed to be walking towards the house. And these footprints were way bigger than Chris's feet. Like, it was not Chris's feet. These shoes were bigger. Oh, shit. So, like, 
it appeared from the very beginning that something much more sinister had happened. Police also went on to interview all of Chris's friends, because remember, they're looking at him as a runaway, seeing if he snuck out with his friends. Right. And when police interviewed everyone, not one of Chris's friends had seen him the night that he'd vanished. None of his friends had even heard from him that night. Oh, wow. Because, again, he literally worked all day, went home, and passed out. Right. Nobody heard from him. None of his friends did. So, like, it's not looking good. And after a couple of days passed with no contact of any kind from Chris, the whole runaway theory crumbled completely. Kathy Steiner said from the beginning of all this that she knew her son didn't run away. There was not one reason that Kathy could think of to explain why Chris would just up and leave. It did not make sense. Right. George also let his initial theory go, and he too began to believe very quickly that something had happened to Chris, something bad. Kathy and George would speak to local news outlets in the first few days after Chris's disappearance, pleading with the community to come forward with any and all information. Oh, man. And that is pretty heartbreaking to think about. You know, these people begging the public to help them find their son like the these people had no answers they had no leads they had nothing their child had just vanished from his fucking bedroom without a trace yeah so unfortunately it would be some time before the truth of what happened to chris was revealed his family and his community did not have any answers or any type of closure or anything for over a year fuck man so very sadly <sighs> After a desperate search that lasted for six days, on July 10th, 1994, 14-year-old Christian Steiner was found dead floating in the Wisconsin River by some jet skiers. His body was badly decomposed when he was found due to it being really hot outside in the summer months and, you know, he was in the water for a week. Right. So Chris had to be identified by dental records. And it is just, by God, it's horrible. And this whole episode... Is only going to get more horrible. <laughs> oh, shit. So it was only 24 hours after Chris's body was found that the autopsy was performed, and his cause of death was initially ruled as an accidental drowning. Okay. When Chris was found floating in the river, there wasn't really a concrete way to tell exactly where he entered the river. You know, he could have fallen in the river way upstream and then floated down, you know, with the current. So that was taken into account. But going right back to that autopsy, the pathologist that was working the case said that the amount of decomposition made it difficult to find any traumatic injuries or anything that would indicate foul play. Mm. So everyone was just really quick to label this whole thing as a tragic accident. Like they're saying, you know, this kid could have fallen in the river way upstream, got banged up on the way down and drowned. And they didn't look further than that. And the manner of Chris's death was labeled as undetermined. And sadly, Chris's case was closed after a few months. God, man. And just four days after he was found in the river on July 14th, 1994, Chris was laid to rest officially at the St. Joseph's Cemetery located in Baraboo. Okay. So thinking about what this did to Chris's family, I mean, I just fucking can't. Like, I couldn't imagine like spending a whole year going into my son's room, sitting there, smelling his clothes, crying my eyes and out, not you know, knowing, like, not knowing what the fuck happened. And not to only him. not knowing, but having everyone around you telling you this narrative that you know isn't true. So, like, I, I seriously couldn't imagine that. George and Kathy knew that Chris didn't fall into a river and just drowned. But that's the only answer they were left with. The following is a quote from George Steiner. And he said, quote, What hurts so much is that you know there were other kids with him. 
something happened out there. Something terrible happened out there. What we don't understand is how somebody could have left him out there without calling. End quote. Wow. It is absolutely heartbreaking. So as I said a little earlier, it would be a little over a year before the truth of what happened to Chris Steiner would come to light. And to begin unraveling how the truth came out, I need to introduce you to the next person in this story. And that person is Thaddeus Phillips, or for short, he goes by Thad. Okay. So during the summer of 1995, Thad was 13 years old, and he had just moved to Baraboo, Wisconsin with his family from another state, so he was the new kid in town. Okay. Thad lived with his parents and his three younger siblings. And Thad was a very kind and energetic kid. He had a deep love for sports. More specifically, he loved baseball and football. All around, he was just an all-American 13-year-old boy, you know? Right. He was settling into his new environment, his new school. He was making some new friends in the neighborhood. He was really enjoying his summer. On the evening of July 28th, 1995, Thad had a pretty average day with his family. And that night, Thad ended up falling asleep with his youngest sister on the couch. She was five years old. They fell asleep watching TV together. It's super, super cute. So sweet. (laughs) But things would take a very weird turn when Thad was woken up in the middle of the night from someone picking him up off of the couch. Oh, hell no. At first... Thad thought that this was his parents maybe carrying him to his room so that he could sleep in his bed. This was something that they did sometimes when he would fall asleep downstairs, you know? Yeah. But that wasn't the case. You don't just pick up teenagers and carry them to bed. I mean, maybe some people do. Who knows? I cannot be carrying no teenager to bed. Hell no. So, yeah, you know, Thad thought this was maybe his mom or his dad carrying him into his bedroom, but that wasn't the case. Thad was being woken up by a kid that he'd seen in the neighborhood before, 17-year-old Joe Clark. I yeah. don't like that. I mean. Why the fuck are you in? The- it's it's scary. Oh, it is fucking fuck? scary. What like, it's fuck? truly scary. So Thad was half asleep and dazed at first. You know, his mind was still waking up. And he noticed that he was being carried outside, barefoot in his pajamas, just being carried out of his fucking home. He was lifted up off of his couch where he was sleeping with his sister and just carried out. Scary shit. What the fuck? Joe Clark took Thad over to his house, which was less than a mile from Thad's house. And when Thad got to Joe's house, he noticed that it was extremely filthy. Uh, Beer bottles were lying everywhere. Old food and trash were scattered everywhere. The house reeked of mold and rotten food. Uh. Yeah, not a not a pretty picture. So Thad started to wake up a little more, and he's becoming alarmed, and he's asking Joe, you know, like, what's going on? Like, why did you bring me here? And this is where Joe proceeds to tell Thad that he just wanted to hang out. Joe said that he was throwing a small party at his place that night and that he was going to have some friends over. So Joe starts listing off names of some kids that are supposed to come to this party. And Thad actually knew some of the kids that Joe was naming. Nah, bro. That's a fuck no for me. Yeah, That's a fuck no for me. So Thad accepted the proposal to hang out, which before we're like, oh, my God, why the fuck would you do that? Let's take this perspective into account that this kid is 13. He's a child. And he just got lifted off of his fucking couch in the dead of night and brought to brought to another house. And this kid is telling him that he just wants to hang out. Honestly, I can imagine in that situation, he was probably scared shitless. 
and was like, you know, let me not freak the fuck out. Like right now, let me like this kid just walked into my fucking house and picked me up and carried me here. Maybe I should be a little fucking chill. You know, that's just a perspective to take. Yeah. Ultimately, we won't know what was going through Thad's mind, but he accepted the proposal to hang out nonetheless. And shortly after Thad agreed to hang out, Joe proposed to Thad that they go upstairs to his room. Joe was telling Thad that he had some really cool car models and stuff that he wanted to show him, like some little, you know, model cars and shit. Yeah. So they went upstairs. And as soon as they got into the bedroom, Joe's entire demeanor just changed. He fucking flipped. And what comes after this? Uh... Well, I mean, absolutely. he just called the fucking bone breaker. It's, would... <laughs> it's fucking horrific. It's pretty bad. Yeah, there's about to be a lot of bones breaking. Uh, but <laughs> anyways, uh, <laughs> continuing on. Joe pushed Thad onto his bed. And then with both hands, Joe grabbed Thad's right ankle and twisted it until it snapped loudly and broke. <sighs> Thad's foot was completely twisted backwards. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Thad then went into shock. And he immediately tried to jump off the bed and run away from Joe. Thad somehow made it downstairs with a snapped ankle. But before he could make it to the door, Joe grabbed him from behind and forced him onto the couch. Thad was laying on his back, and this is where Joe takes Thad's leg and he pushes it up above Thad's head until his thigh snapped. Yeah, snapped his fucking thigh. Oh my god. Thad would later say that when he felt his thigh snap, that he didn't initially feel the pain of it uh, because he was in shock, but he was terrified. And he said that he could feel his bones splintering and rubbing against one another, even though he couldn't initially feel pain. So, yeah, it is. It is absolutely. I just it's unimaginable, like unimaginable. And this is only the beginning. I I just. Instead of my asshole leaving my body, my whole body just curled up around my asshole and said, nope, nope. Mine fucking did too. Like, this is awful. Like, this is truly awful. This really fucking happened. This is one of those cases that, like, if this was presented to me in the form of, like, a book or, like, a movie or something, I'd be like, wow, this is some wild fucking shit. But, like, okay, whatever. But, no, this is real. Like, this is genuinely fucking real so after joe had snapped thad's thigh thad said that his whole demeanor just switched back to normal all of a sudden joe was very friendly and calm and he was wanting to have conversation and you know scary shit scary shit he's flipping this shit on and off like a light switch so thad started trying to engage in conversation with joe hoping that maybe the talk would distract joe from doing any further damage So Thad specifically asked Joe, quote, why are you doing this to me, end quote. And this is where Joe tells Thad that he has a deep fascination with the sounds of snapping and breaking bones. And then he told Thad something else, that he had done this to two other boys before, one of which was 14-year-old Chris Steiner. Oh, my God. And for the next 48 hours, Joe continued to torture Thad by breaking his bones during violent fits of rage. Not only did Joe break Thad's right ankle and his thigh, but Joe snapped Thad's left ankle and both femur bones with his hands as well. Joe would break Thad's legs further by jumping on them and repeatedly 
twisting and snapping the already broken bones with his hands. Joe also at one point put a pillow over Thad's face, and then he took his pants off and started masturbating over Thad's broken legs. And let me remind all of you again, Joe Clark is 17 fucking years old. 17. I am so sick right now. Like, and it, so nauseous. It is fucking shocking. He's, he's a true sadist. Joe Clark is a true fucking sadist. He was a monster. He genuinely and wholeheartedly got off on the suffering and agony of others, and it reflects very clearly in his torture methods. And right. it's just, it's so incredibly fucked up. To have the strength... To do that with your bare hands, like Thad's femur bones were broken. Do you know how fucking thick the femur bone is? Oh, yeah. I couldn't imagine. I just could not fucking imagine. Not only did Joe Clark have this thing about breaking bones and listening to the sounds that were made when bones broke and all that other creepy, awful shit. But Joe Clark also had a thing for trying to tend to the bones that he had broken. So at another point in this 48 hours from hell... Joe put one of Thad's legs in an old hospital leg brace with layers of white gym socks from his dresser drawer, as if he was trying to, you know, take care of the broken leg, essentially. Like splint it back together. Yes. And as he's doing all of this, Joe starts telling Thad about how he had attempted to snap and break his own arms and legs, but that he could just never get the angle quite right. What the fuck? Joe Clark also forced Thad to try and walk with his shattered legs while wearing these leg braces. He would force him to get up and try to walk with his legs shattered. I mean fucking shattered. Like not just a little broken. I mean fucking shattered. In between the torturous bone breaking sessions, Joe kept Thad locked up in his bedroom closet with no food and no water. And it is unimaginable Thad endured this for two fucking days two days the following morning after he was abducted by joe clark thad's parents woke up and they found that their son was gone and they also found that thad's sneakers were left by the door in the exact spot that he had left them in the evening before so they were immediately like okay where the fuck did our child go in the middle of the night fucking right. barefooted so they immediately panic they start searching uh, Thad's parents drove all over Baraboo searching for him, and they couldn't find a trace of him anywhere. They had no idea that this whole time he was being held less than a mile away from their home. Like, it is unreal. So after Thad's parents drove around to a few places with no luck, they called the police to report Thad is missing, and a search began. And it would be two days after Thad was initially abducted on July 30th, 1995, that Joe Clark had to leave the house for a few hours. He wanted to go to a party that night. So he used ace bandages to bind Thad's shattered legs, and he placed him in his bedroom closet and locked the door. And then he left. And this next part, man, it's just fucking insane. Like, I mean, this whole case is insane, but what I'm about to tell you, Thad Thad Phillips was nothing short of a complete fucking badass. And you're about to see why. So after Joe put Thad in the closet, he left the house to, you know, go to that party, do whatever the fuck it was that he was doing. And when Thad heard Joe leave, he picked around the closet until he found a guitar that was in the closet with him. And then he used it to bust a hole in the closet door so that he could, you know, then reach through the hole and unlock the door. Right. So once Thad got the closet door open, 
he used his arms and crawled out of the bedroom and he threw himself down the stairs with his legs, again, being completely shattered from the waist down. He's dragging himself across carpet and downstairs. Mm. Can you imagine how that would feel? Hitting every single step with shattered fucking legs. Mm. My God. So Thad makes it down the stairs and he's crawling to find a phone, but he starts passing out. Thad would pass out, wake up, pull himself a little bit further, and then he'd pass out again. And this cycle continued for some time. He would he was repeatedly passing out, waking up, passing out, waking up, crawling yeah. a few inches, passing out, waking up. I could not fucking imagine. But eventually, Thad somehow did manage to find a phone, and then he called 911. Very panicked, Thad tells dispatchers that he's been kidnapped by Joe Clark and that his legs were broken and that he needed help. So dispatchers traced the call, and police officers and paramedics arrived very quickly. And when Thad was found, he was in horrible shape. Both of his feet were twisted backwards. Mm. Both of his knees were twisted backwards. His broken thigh was swollen to the size of a basketball and his legs were turning yellow and black. Like I could not imagine this at all. Thad was immediately rushed to St. Clair Hospital in Baraboo and doctors began trying to save his legs. And his injuries were horrific. The doctor said that if Thad had gone two more hours without medical attention, that he would have died due to the internal bleeding in his legs. Wow. So this kid was quite literally knocking on death's door when he broke out of that closet and got to the phone. Like if he would have waited two more hours, he would have died. Wow. From the waist down, both of Thad's legs were completely shattered to pieces. Thad suffered multiple ankle fractures and dislocations, multiple knee fractures and dislocations, the femur and tibia bones on both of Thad's legs were completely broken and snapped into pieces. His knees were broken, and one of his hips was also broken. They thought they were going to have to amputate his legs. Like, it is fucking wild. That's that's immediately where my mind went. I can't even freaking talk. That's right where my mind went was, oh my god, they're going to have to cut his legs off. Yeah, they really thought that was going to have to be the case at first. Um, the surgeon that initially operated on Thad said that his injuries were on the scale of injuries that you would see in a high-speed, brutal, and traumatic car accident. Like, it is truly beyond. I cannot imagine what pain this child felt. I truly couldn't. And a little later, this is, this is kind of random, and I'm kind of flowing this from my brain, but Thad, as an adult, was interviewed on, I believe it's A&E, mm -hmm. but there was like an episode of like, I think it was like telling survivor stories and Thad was on there as an adult and he was, you know, telling what happened to him. Mm -hmm. He said that during all this from the beginning of the abduction to when his ankle was first broke to when he was found that he didn't cry one time because he didn't want Joe Clark to see that he was afraid. So wow. he so he went through all of this and did not shed one tear. Like it's just I just couldn't imagine it. So back to him being in the hospital in between leg surgeries, Thad was being questioned, and he told investigators what Joe had told him, that he had done this to another boy named Chris Steiner. Mm -hmm. And this information was huge for Chris's case. Right. So the police had already gone to Joe Clark's home and waited for him on the day that Thad called 911. And when he got home, he was immediately arrested and brought in for questioning. And when it comes to the interrogation of Joe Clark, 
Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of information. Uh, Joe was never really honest with investigators. He never really volunteered anything to help things. He just kind of shrugged everything off. Joe Clark told police that he had simply blacked out for the entire duration of time that Thad was with him. He said he didn't remember anything other than, quote, assisting him off of his couch, end quote. Oh, bullshit. Assisting him off of his couch. Okay. (laughs) Right. So Joe Clark also told the investigators that he had watched Thad play in his yard for days and days, studying his routine. And on the night that he abducted Thad, Joe said that he felt like it was the perfect time because it didn't seem that his parents were at home, which that is absolutely fucking scary because that means that this kid, this 17 year old kid was a genuine fucking predator. He was stalking people. Premeditated as fuck. Premeditated as fuck. Also to add to that, when the police received a warrant to search Joe's house, they found sketches in his room that he'd drawn sketches of house layouts from other houses in his neighborhood. Like He was scoping out and learning the layout of different houses so that he could then break into them. He's 17. I am not okay. He is fucking 17. And this next part, oh, I fucking hate it. This next part absolutely makes me sick. So police also found not one, not two, but three handwritten lists in Joe's room. And these lists were each titled, Get To Now, Can Wait, and leg thing. He had three lists, and these were the titles of these three lists. And on these lists, Joe had written the name of 29 boys, all of which lived in the neighborhood, and their names were in various categories. So again, I'll say it for the hundredth time, 17 fucking years old, and he is a full-blown fucking predator. Like, full-blown. Let me remind you again, everybody is not your fucking friend. No. Like, my fucking God, just a kid in the neighborhood, like we said earlier, Dalen's age. Literally, imagine Dalen doing this shit. And it's my like, son will never leave the house again. <laughs> <laughs> so, initially, Joe Clark was kept in custody with kidnapping charges. But this brought some time for the police to do some more investigating. Remember... They had that information from Thad regarding the death of Chris Steiner, and they wanted to look more into that. Thad's testimony caused the Columbia County Police Department to reopen Chris's case. And soon after Chris's case was reopened, his body was ordered to be exhumed and then re-examined. A second autopsy was done. And the results of this autopsy showed that Chris Steiner had both of his ankles broken, both of his knees broken, His bones were basically broken in the exact same manner that Thad's legs had been broken. So he had his feet, his knees, and what else? His ankles. Like, his legs, again, were broken pretty much exactly the way Thad's legs had been broken. And it was also determined that none of Chris's bones were broken post-mortem. He had sustained the injuries before death. Joe Clark tortured him and broke his legs the same way that he did Thad, and then Joe Clark threw him into the Wisconsin River to drown because he couldn't swim with shattered legs. What the f***? So after this discovery was made, Chris Steiner's cause of death would be officially changed from accidental drowning to homicide. So getting into the court proceedings, 
It was on September 7th, 1995, that Joe Clark appeared in circuit court where he was facing one count of causing great bodily harm to a child, one count of kidnapping, one count of attempted first-degree intentional homicide, one count of burglary, and one count of mayhem, and one count of causing mental harm to a child, and one count of enticement of a child. <laughs> so they just, they they said, we're going to throw the whole fucking book at this kid. Pretty much. Uh, Joe was facing all of these charges for what he did to Thad Phillips. And he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Of don't, fucking course Don't we he did. love that shit? Don't we love that shit? I mean, like, that is there for people who are actually mentally incompetent, from right. what I understand. Like, that actually have some shit going on. This right. kid is not fucking insane. I'm just, I'm throwing that out there now. He's not. <sighs> Far from fucking insane. So, during the beginning phases of this trial, Joe Clark's mother, Bertha Clark, testified that Joe had been involved in a pretty bad bike accident one year prior to the abduction of Thad Phillips. She said that he was thrown approximately 30 feet off of his bike, landing on his head. And according to his mother... This accident could have caused some sort of brain trauma that would explain Joe's violent behavior. Reaching. And she also testified that after this bike accident that Joe became noticeably more hot-headed and short-tempered. And Joe as well also continued to plead his innocence, saying that he only went and abducted Thad so that they could just hang out. Joe stayed adamant that he didn't remember injuring Thad in any way, and it's fucking ridiculous. Uh, several court-appointed psychologists were also brought in to evaluate Joe, and none of these psychologists would agree that he was suffering from any sort of mental defect or altered capacity. And even more damning testimony came when Thad Phillips took the stand. Like, I could just not fucking imagine this incredibly brave kid took the stand and he told the court about the horrific ordeal that he suffered at the hands of Joe Clark. Thad told the court that Joe had grabbed his ankles and twisted them until they snapped and his feet were backwards. Thad went on to tell the courts about how Joe not only broke and snapped his legs with his bare hands, but also how he repeatedly jumped on his legs to break them further. And when Thad was testifying, the courtroom was silent. People were sobbing. People were getting sick. Like, it was horrible. And eventually... Thad reached a point to where he too started crying and he asked the court, quote, please, can I stop talking about this? End quote. Wow. It is very, very heart wrenching to think about. Yes, like, baby, you can stop talking about I it I just now. couldn't imagine how traumatized he is. Like, my <laughs> God. Well, he's grown now, so. But I'm telling you, man, my God. And well, after, if you're listening to this, Thad, do you want a hug? We'll totally give you a hug. We'll totally give you a hug. Because my fucking God. So after all of this, the jury wasn't buying any of the defense theories, like not one bit. So in spite of the attempts by Joe's defense team, he was found guilty of all charges. And on November 14th, 1995, when the sentencing phase began, Joe Clark was sentenced to 100 years in prison. And these 100 years were to be served consecutively. So now we're going to jump ahead to October of 1997, that was the month that the preliminary hearing for Joe Clark in regards to the death of Chris Steiner was to begin. Okay. And Thad Phillips was going to be the lead witness for the prosecution. And this next part 
is fucking wild. Like right when you think you've heard it all with this case that it can't get more fucked up and crazy. Well, <laughs> it does. <laughs> oh, God. But two days, two days before this preliminary hearing, one of Joe Clark's friends, a boy named Michael, got into an argument with Thad and Michael shot him in the back twice with a rifle. Not only did Thad go through what he went through with Joe Clark, but two days before this trial, he gets shot by one of Joe's friends twice. What the fuck? Yeah, it's fucking crazy. So Thad went on to make a full recovery and he still testified as a witness at Joe Clark's trial. Listen, listen. This is this kid is such a he's built differently. Certain people you just cannot fucking keep down. He was built differently, like a complete badass. Wow. And he was he was barely 15 years old at this point. So, like again, badass. Like the badassery. Not only did he get shot, but he's like, oh no, fuck you. I'm still going to testify. Like, my God, that is just, it It gives me chills. Like, honestly, I have chills as I'm talking about it. Thad, Thad, yes, please share some of the badassery for the rest of us. <laughs> please, we ask you to donate your scrolls of badassery. <laughs> please. Please, please. <laughs> we shall put your tome on our altar. I just, I cannot, I just cannot imagine, man. This, this case took me. This case fucking took me. It's so, taking me to a place that I don't want to be. <laughs> so before I go too off track, continuing with the trial, it would be in November of 1997 that then 19-year-old Joe Clark would officially stand trial for the murder of Christian Steiner. And Joe pulled the same old shit the whole time. The same shit. He was adamant that he had not one thing to do with Chris's death. Motherfucker, it didn't work the first time. It's not going to work the second time. And this next part also is very fucking enraging. Like, I'm talking enraging. But Joe's mother, Bertha, was also very outspoken about Joe's innocence. Like, the amount of denial that this woman was in. Is enraging. So Bertha stated at this trial, quote, we're talking about two kids who got into a fight. The police made the rest up. End quote. First of all, bitch, your house is moldy and nasty and fucking your child's out here breaking bones and shit. You are not the model of motherhood. But it's like Bertha proclaimed that her son was being railroaded and wrongly accused of murder. And that's. Like with what you were just saying, it's infuriating because it's like Bertha. This isn't just some hearsay shit that these people are like on a witch hunt for your son. Your son did kill him. There's proof. Like there's a difference, Bertha. Like if this was just, again, like a witch hunt or wild accusations, that would be a little different. But you're you're missing the point, Bertha, that your son's being charged for killing someone because he did. Oh, Bertha. Please find an Ikea and take several seats. Thank you. I'm telling you, and she, it's just the level of denial is just fucking insane. That's the best way that I know how to say it. Bertha also went on to try and form an alibi for Joe, saying that he was asleep in his bed on the night of July 3rd all night and that he couldn't have gone anywhere. That's a very weak attempt to try to save your child. Like, I, it's just fucking insane, but it's also disrespectful. Like, for her to sit up there and say, we're talking about two kids who got into a fight. The police made the rest up. It's like, 
What about Thaddeus? What about Chris? What about Chris's what about family? Because this isn't a story of two kids who got into a fight. This is a story of your kid who brutally kidnapped and murdered another child and left him drowning in the fucking river. So, like, I Fuck think you, you're bitch. missing the bigger point, Bertha. I really think you're missing the bigger point, but you know, whatever. I'm sorry. I'm a Capricorn. I'm not nice. Fuck you, Bertha. <laughs> but we'll continue. But with all that evidence, you know, being brought forward, it was a pretty rock solid case. You know, the prosecution brought up how Chris had sustained almost the exact same injuries as Thad Phillips. Yeah. And Kathy Steiner, Chris's mom, also testified that she suspected from the very beginning that Joe had something to do with Chris's death. Kathy said that she remembered specifically that Joe Clark was the last person that Chris had spoken to the night that he vanished. They had gotten into an argument because Chris didn't want to go out. Mother's note is right. that intuition. And also, there were several kids at the Baraboo High School that Joe went to that suspected he had done something to Chris as well. Which, as far as the accounts of school kids... No, that's not exactly hardcore evidence. It could be hearsay. Kids can be fucking ridiculous. You know that. But it is a little unsettling that Joe's entire peer group collectively thought that he had killed another child. Like his whole peer group were like, yeah, you killed Chris. Wow. So it's a bit chilling. I don't know. So in spite of Joe trying his hardest to convince the jury that he was innocent, He was found guilty on the count of first degree premeditated murder in the death of Christian Steiner, and he was given an additional life sentence to serve concurrently alongside the 100 year sentence he received for abducting and torturing Thad Phillips. Put his ass under the jail. Under the jail. Just put him under the jail. Put him under the jail. Fold the rug. In 1998, Joe Clark appealed his sentence for the Thad Phillips case, saying that he was wrongly convicted of mayhem on hardly any concrete factual evidence. Exhibit A. (laughs) Exhibit A? I don't know, Joe. Uh, This child broke out of your closet and called 911 from your house. Right. So, like, I don't know. That's pretty fucking concrete to me, but I could just be running my fucking mouth. What do I know? (laughs) The kid called 911 from your house. Like, my fucking God. That didn't go well, though. The appeal was, of course, denied. (laughs) And his sentence was upheld. And today, Joe Clark is serving his sentence at the Fox Lake Correctional Institution located in Dodge County, Wisconsin. And he's eligible for parole in the year 2090. And that concludes my coverage of Joe Clark, the Baraboo Bone Breaker. Thanks, I'm done. <laughs> I've had enough. That was like me last week. I was like, you're done. <laughs> you're done. <laughs> no, you're done. Man, you're because done. You're like, done. Okay, I have broken. Not a lot of people know this, but I used to be a pro wrestler. Mm-hmm. And I have broken so many freaking bones that I know what it feels like. I know what it sounds like. And this whole episode made me fucking uncomfortable and nostalgic about (laughs) my own woes. (laughs) Fuck, man. It's pretty fucking bad. Like I it's like I said in the beginning. Now we have a little bit of context here at the end. This is one of the most unusual cases that I've ever learned about. Like you hear about 
all these types of serial killers and all these types of sadists and the awful shit that they do. Like you hear a ton of it, but I personally have never heard of a case in which a killer, his thing was the sound Mm -hmm. of breaking bones. Like that is, that is like another fucking level of chilling. Like honestly. And for Thad to go through what he went through and survive. And not only did he survive that, but thanks to Thad, he helped solve Chris Steiner's case. Man, I'm telling you, the human body can actually withstand a lot more than you think it can. I'm telling, especially under some fucking high pressure situations, I guess. My God. To go through all of that and then be shot afterwards. That's the kicker. I actually forgot about that for a second. Yeah. And then he was shot. Like, my God. The Someone called T Terminator 5000 and tell him that he's got to run for his fucking money because Thad is coming in full force. Fuck. So on a later report, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Thad is grown now. Obviously, he survived this ordeal. He went on to, you know, I think he's married. I know he has children. Went on to and, live a happy uh, he life. Still, he still lives out in Baraboo, I, I believe sweetheart no move the fuck out of baraboo <laughs> but but you know what though for him to stay there after enduring all that he's that just, basically saying i won that yeah that's just adding to his level of badassery so thad phillips if you ever hear this my my god dude like patron saint of badassery <laughs> like one of the patron saints of badassery like entirely like this story is just fucking shocking I'm so happy that he survived and I'm I'm happy that justice got brought to Chris Steiner. Like, right. That's it's so, moving, man. It's moving. So he said that he did this to two other boys. So one of the boys was Chris Steiner. So who was the other boy before that? Well, was there any information on him? There was no information. Um, It could be speculation that Joe was lying because uh, he's unnamed. Like when Joe told Thad that he had killed Chris Steiner, he named Chris Steiner, but this other boy was unnamed. So there was never really anything found Mm. um, in that time period. I'm trying to think of which episode I listened to there. I don't know if they're a podcast or if they're a YouTube channel, but they're called the misery machine. Oh, Um, I love them. Oh, true. Well, I just recently found them. I listened to their coverage of this case, Mm -hmm. and one of the hosts, I don't remember her name, she was saying that they went through the missing person records of that time period, 1994, 1995, to see if there were any other missing children in the Baraboo, you know, area during Mm -hmm. this time, and there wasn't. None that were reported anyway. So... Joe could have been lying. I mean, we don't know, but he did for sure kill Chris Steiner, and then he tried to kill Thad, so, you know, we have that. Well, I am just happy that his mayhem was stopped when it was stopped. I just, I hate that he had to go through that, but... He made it. I mean, he did the, like, he did the damn thing. I mean, it really, (laughs) it really makes you think about, like... If you were to sit and say, okay, everything happens for a reason, I know I'm getting off on a tangent... Um, but if everything happens for a reason, his reason was to stop him and to bring justice to Chris. I mean, his case was closed, you know, for some time before this incident happened. So all around this story is not only fucking horrific, but it's an incredible survival story. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the coverage today. This one was, it took me for a loop, man. So I don't really have, (laughs) it's crazy. Yeah. So 
If you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, great news. You can definitely do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. And don't forget our email, guys. GoreReportPod at gmail.com. You are always welcome to send us an email, but you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't, you really don't have to. It's just if you want to. Bertha, clean your fucking house. <laughs> I fucking can't stand it. And clean you know, your fucking house. Clean your fucking house. Pay attention house. to what your fucking kid is getting into. And you know what else I was going to say? We've said it a few times, and I said it last week about the Corpsewood murderers. I hope your fucking bones break every time you breathe, but I don't wish that for you, Joe Clark, because chances are you fucking like it. So I don't wish that for you at all. So that being said, we are motherfucking dipping out. And until next time, bye. bye. Are you afraid? You should be. You bless me.